Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. All right, so you've been hearing about the Liberal government's plan to bring Syrian refugees to Canada. In the campaign, the Liberals said that they would bring 25,000 refugees from Syria by the end of this year. And by the way, that's not going to happen. That's true, but the government is now promising to bring that same amount in by the end of next year. And on top of the 25,000 government-sponsored refugees, we're expecting at least 10,000 privately-sponsored refugees from Syria. Now, it's hard to picture that many actual people. 35,000 people is about 50 times the number of players in the NHL. It's more people, actually, than the population of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. But behind all those numbers, there are real-life people. So we're going to zoom in and see what goes into getting just three of those refugees into Canada. I'm Andre Demis. And I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is sponsored by Canadian journalists for free expression. CJFE defends and advocates for free expression in Canada and around the world. Part of what they do is to defend your right to know about how government decisions affect you. CJFE's Promotions and Communications Coordinator Alex Buck 
told me about their campaign to improve Canada's access to information system. We saw that the access to information system in Canada was just not working, which has implications for free speech. So we got in touch with our entire community, asking them to send letters to the party leaders, their local MPs and their senators, calling for access to information reform. And over 500 people actually sent a letter to those people. Now the current leadership has pledged to reform access to information, and we've reached out to them to work together with them to make that the best system it can possibly be. CJFE couldn't do this without the support of members. If you become a member of CJFE, you'll be helping them to run this campaign and others like it. Listeners of Commons get 70% off their membership. Just go to cjfe.org and enter the code CANADALAND when you sign up. Do it now. Keep the knowledge in your hands, where it belongs. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Nancy Addison is a retired school teacher living in Jasper, Alberta. Jasper is a town of less than 5,000 people and it's located out in the remote area of the Rockies. What Nancy's doing is sponsoring a family of three Syrian refugees to come to our community. She joins me to talk about that process. Nancy, you're from Jasper. That's right. And uh, that's, that's not the most populous community out there. No, there's a cap on the, the population here. We can only go as high as 5,000. Hang on. So you can only have 5,000 people in the community? That's right. There's a, a need to reside clause. So you have to have a reason to live here. You can't just move here. You have to have work. Tell me a little bit about the community. What's it like over there? Oh, it's beautiful. The number one employer would be tourism, I suppose, because we've got so many hotels, 81 restaurants. The focus is on bringing the world here to enjoy the outdoors. It's a very small population in a beautiful setting. Can you tell me a little bit about the family that you're sponsoring? I don't know a lot about them, but what I do know is that the father, 64, his name is Asan. He's a civil engineer. He was working in arms until his building was bombed. They had to flee, and he left with his wife, Omaya, who's 60, and she's a teacher. I imagine they went to Damascus because that's where their daughter worked. She's 30. Her name is Reham, and she is a lawyer, and she's working at the Syrian International Bank there. So... I mean, they, they seem to be a pretty well-off family before the war, at least. I can only imagine that they probably were. They probably were doing very well living in a nice neighborhood. But of course, everybody's had to flee. Can you walk me through the process of becoming a sponsor? How it all started for me was uh, just an idea in my head and watching everything on television. You just get tired of seeing it and thinking the world's going belly up and you just wish you could do something. So I was talking to a man I barely know on the street, but anyway, he stopped me and he said, doesn't it make you ill? And I said, yes. And he said, wouldn't it be great if we could bring a family here? And I said, well, it'd be wonderful. But Jasper has... Hang on, a total stranger stopped you in the street and says, hey, I'd like to just bring a family over here. Wouldn't you like to do that too? (laughs) Well, no, he's not a total stranger. I know he works for the Lions Club and and he knows that uh, I have interest in, in making the world a better place too. So we sort of are cut from the same cloth, I guess. So he stopped and just asked me if I would help him. And I said I would, but my problem is there's zero vacancy right here in Jasper. So there's nowhere for anyone to live if they were brought here. But he said if I would do everything else, he would find a place for them to live. So I started researching it, and I discovered that if you go to an Anglican church, or I suppose any church, uh, probably you know a synagogue, anywhere, and ask for help, 
usually some sort of religious institution will help you. And I went there and told them what I wanted to do. And even though the Anglican Church here in Jasper is uh, pretty close to broke and very few people going to it, the people that were there offered to help me and they gave me a motion, which I needed to proceed. And then I drove into the city to see a woman who works for the Anglican Diocese. Her name is Gail Millard, and she's been working with refugees for the past 22 years. So I drove to her house. Her house is more like a command center. She has applicants' papers there all over her home. She's missing pieces of furniture because she's given them away to refugees who have arrived in the country. But uh, anyway, she kept me there for hours, making sure that I am all right and not a strange duck. And uh, we went through the applications all together, and she steered me in the direction of two. One of them um, had children, and this other one that I eventually picked didn't. And she told me that children are very easily sponsored. People want to help children, but this family, because they're older, probably would languish over there and never get any help. So I picked up the letter from Reham, and by that time they'd made it I don't even know how, but I know they went to Jordan, and somehow they'd ended up in a mountainous village in Lebanon. So she was writing from there saying, you know, please help us, we have no options. So after reading that, you know, I I just said, okay, well, I'll take these guys. And Gail sort of referred to it as unclogging the pipe, you know, so that others could move along. Have you been able to communicate with the family? I mean, have you had much correspondence with them? Well, I write to them, but of course, I imagine they're standing in lines to get to the White Crescent tents, which would be the equivalent, I suppose, of what we'd know as the Red Cross. So they line up and they wait for use at a computer. They're hurried along. So I do write them. I'll say things like, you know, I needed to know if they smoked because, of course, that affects what kind of apartment I can get for them. Most people don't want smokers. So I wrote to Reham and I asked, are you smokers? And she replied that they weren't and uh, that they never had been. They used to ask people to leave their home if they smoked. And she made the first joke, which really made me feel good, about uh, if I chose to smoke, she'd report me to the landlord and escort me outside. And she she put uh, LOL and, and a little happy face. So I know they're starting to relax. They're starting to feel that there is hope, there is a chance, there's somebody out there who has their best interests in mind. And that sort of brings me to the point of what you have to do to prepare for the family's arrival in Jasper. I mean, aside from looking for a place, it's not just a matter of, okay, we're here. What other work has to be done? Well, Gail has told me that to the man, every single refugee that comes has been traumatized. So one of the things uh, we've been doing is we've been looking around for people that might be able to help them once they arrive here. So we found a counselor who is quite, you know, a pricey counselor, but she's offered all of her services for free. There's other people who are offering to take them into the back country and teach them, you know, how to skate or horseback ride or Oh my gosh. And I have to tell you a story too. Uh, this very lovely man by the name of John Ogilvy, he's 87 and he's a civil engineer and he phoned me and I again, I don't know him very well and that's what's happened here so many people reach out to offer various things to me, but John phoned and said, you know, I'm trying to retire. I'm 87. There's nobody to replace me. So I would like to have this guy shadow me. I'll teach him the ropes. I'll work my hardest to find out how to get him his Canadian papers, and I'll give him my job. No way. Yes. So I got a hold of Reham, and I told her that. And uh, she said her father really wanted to know that man's name because he wanted to feel it on his tongue and say it out loud. And that 
really gave me shivers when she wrote that back. And of course, John was very touched when I relayed that information to him. Um, wow. I kind of want to head out that way myself. Oh, you should. It's beautiful. Um, what kind of uh, work do you expect the rest of the family to find in Jasper? Well, I know they say they'll do anything. They just want another chance at life and they want to feel safe. There's, you know, loads of jobs, uh, washing dishes and, and sweeping floors, changing beds and hotels. I'm sure that that's probably where they'll begin and maybe they'll stay doing that, but they may find something else more suitable. I know there's another family here that uh, hopes they'll be able to teach their children Arabic. So maybe they'll fit into a different aspect that I haven't even thought of yet. So when the family arrives in Jasper, where are they going to be living? Well, we've been really lucky. Uh, we found a wonderful place in a log home. So it's, you know, got slanted roofs. They live in a log cabin. Yes. It'll... And they're going to be taught ice skating and horseback riding. You cannot get more Canadian this. This is amazing. Yeah. It's a wonderful place. Now, as Nancy mentioned, when she wanted to sponsor refugees, she went to the Anglican Church, and the person she dealt with within the church was Gail Millard. Gail is the refugee coordinator for the Anglican Diocese of Edmonton. So they're what's called a sponsorship agreement holder, meaning they have the power to bring refugees into Canada. I called up Gail in Edmonton to hear what the process looks like from her end. I do go out and um, do presentations to my parishes. I haven't been to Jasper yet, but I didn't have to. She contacted me. Um, yeah, apparently she's got that covered. Yes, I think so. So I go out outside of the city as well as inside of the city, and I go to each of my parishes, and I make a presentation on refugee sponsorship, and hopefully they'll buy into it. Then they come to me when they decide if they want to sponsor, and I match them up with uh, a family. How do you make sure that they're ready for the task of being a sponsor? A lot of um, dialogue goes on. We talk a lot about what their duties are, you know, whether they have enough people, whether they have enough money. Do they want to put in a lot of money? Do they want to put in a little money? Since the government committed to bring in 25,000 refugees, have you noticed any difference in the process? Well, it's much speedier. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They're not as... Oh, I was going to say picky um, Okay. about our paperwork. Well, what are some of the differences you've seen be- before the commitments and the, and the, uh, the situation now? Well, there there's, was lengthy, lengthy waiting times for refugees before this. Right. And we hope that um, and pray that one of, the, one of the benefits that will come from this speedy process is that they will step back and take a look at all of the other visa posts in the world that we sponsor from and come up with a, a more timely solution for refugees. So how, how long did it take prior to the change in government uh, on average? Depending on the country they came from, anywhere from two years to seven years. And this whole time, families are sitting around in refugee camps waiting for the sponsorship to come through. That's right. And the ones and that, the ones that aren't Syrian are now still sitting waiting. I mean, right, we have right. we have many sponsorships out there that uh, were done before the Syrian crisis, and they're just they're almost I would expect. You no, know, this is my opinion, uh, sitting in limbo because all of the 
major resources are going to the Syrian refugees. And I'm, I'm not for one instance saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that that's the way it's happening. So for people who um, were initially skeptical, and there were some people who have really dug their heels in um, as to the matter of processing Syrian refugees faster, uh, and they say it's a matter of security or you know combating terror, um, but a lot of people have said, well, we need to slow down this process and and uh, you know make sure that everybody's screened first, or perhaps we shouldn't even take refugees in at all if we have, for example, homeless people and former uh, veterans who still need help. What do you what do you say to people who are basically not okay with the idea of bringing the refugees in? Well, it depends on on their um, thought, why they don't want them. I can understand that people are afraid because that's human nature. I mean, it goes way back. We interned the, the Germans and the Japanese during the war out of fear. Um, that's understandable. It's not reasonable, but it's understandable. And they have every right because of all of the propaganda and the the media hype and um, different things. But mostly I say to people when they talk about terrorists, I said, well, terrorists don't, in my mind, get on little overfilled dinghies and risk death to go to, you know, across an ocean or across the sea to go to another country. They'll stay in their own country or they'll get an airplane ticket and go. They're not running from war. They're not, um, you know, terrorists just aren't refugees. We wanted to hear from someone who's been on the other end of the refugee process. We didn't reach anyone from Syria, but we did get in touch with someone who came to Canada as a refugee under different circumstances. Farah Malik is originally from Pakistan, and she now lives in Toronto. And full disclosure for our listeners, Farah and I used to work together at a place called the Centre for Social Innovation several years ago. Farah, why did you file for refugee status to begin with? So my husband and I, when we came to Canada in 2008, we came as visitors just to spend a couple of months with a friend here. We were doing some uh, work on child rights and peace in Pakistan, and we had planned to go back. But we always had issues due to our political standpoint, and because we were always working uh, on on the issues which always challenged the government. So we had been having problems. So we were attacked in in a car. We were driving and we were attacked by a group of people just a couple of days before we were leaving for Canada. We had already planned to come to Canada just for visit. We thought we will go and we'll spend a couple of months and the dust will subside. We will go back and just start our work because we knew there were many people who were against us. Anyway, when we came here, things didn't subside actually. Our families kept receiving death threats and phone calls and all kinds of things and they were scared. So we had to extend our stay for a couple of months that things get better. But things didn't get better and then we couldn't stay illegally here and that's how we had to apply for refugee status here. Why were you being attacked? So Pakistani government has never been supportive of the NGO's work because they considered them as their 
enemies because they speak of the rights of people and you know uh, so our organization uh, at that time was working on the very delicate issue of peace between india and pakistan and also international peace and we were against the army uh, of pakistan and armies of the world for sure and my husband was quite vocal about it he spoke very openly against the army budget army spending and all so those could be the reasons and also due to our uh, religious which i i i generally say non religious <laughs> inclinations you never know who get flared up and just come and take that violent uh, steps so those were a couple of reasons we still don't know who were the people but we definitely know the reasons farah what was it like to have to leave your country and then not be able to come back and not be able to reconnect with your family it was a huge depression and it was a, a great feeling of like like if you uproot a tree from its land it was just like that because both of us were very active we were working at the grassroots levels we were working with the laboring children and raising voice for human rights and all so it was a huge shift in our lives and especially coming as visitors we never thought that we'll leave the country and start living just unplanned like that so it was a big vacuum my husband went to a big depression i'm an accountant so i the big issue for us was how to live here how to earn some money how to bear our own expenses so i came into the mainstream very fast as compared to him he actually suffered long periods of depression he was simply cut off from the people he couldn't language was not an issue for us we already had friends here but still it was problematic for us it was totally new life we started from zero at the ages of 40s and early 50s it was huge for us yes and your family back home yeah are they okay are they safe they are safe per se because when we say safe in certain countries of the world it's not that every citizen is unsafe now but they are not under threat because of us anymore because it's been now many years and we didn't go except i had to go in an emergency my dad was sick and he passed away so i i i had to go for two weeks quietly and came back but uh, yeah they are fine but again it's this dilemma of refugees and internally displacement it is not for the people who leave the country it is also in that country as well because the families and friends that we leave there it's both ways so What was it like to just realize like okay we can't actually go back home again and now we're going to have to uh, change our status to be in Canada what was that whole process like So I would say that there are different layers of this process emotional for sure that goes all the way and the other is technical process that we had to follow So we told friends here and they helped us connecting with a lawyer and then lawyer took us through the whole process and our issue was not very simple because it was not just a political thing it was also the religious because we are not religious people so we call ourselves atheists and that was a big issue in pakistan also so that is one of the reasons that we couldn't report our attack to the police because our religious ideology would have become another threat for us So anyways um the lawyer had to go through all the systems and he explained that we have to apply first and then judge will review and then there will be a hearing initial hearing and if need be there will be another hearing and then decision will be made so the whole process took i think minimum 3 years 
uh, we researched about the issue at the humanitarian level on our own and we worked with the lawyer and when we had the hearing we actually pleaded our own case we were lucky enough to have a judge who was very well aware of the political situation there and we were granted the status of protected persons right on the first hearing and then after that it took uh, a couple of more years to become permanent residents and then citizens of course so what's happening this whole time i mean uh, from the time that you applied to the time that you actually received your status mm-hmm. it's been years yeah so what happens in the uh, the intervening period so i was working i got a job as a bookkeeper with a company here so i was working and my husband he has a daughter from his first marriage so that daughter was in pakistan so it was also again traumatic because she was left there and she was with her mom so we wanted to start her process of immigration as soon as possible but it was conditional with our status of permanent residents so we could not sponsor her we could not bring her until we become permanent residents so we became permanent residents in 3 years and all those years he was in the air he he was calling her every day and talking to her about you know so it was quite an emotional turmoil he has been a playwright for street theater so he was trying his best if he could uh work again here but he couldn't so he was um mostly at home and b- b- when we were waiting for the date of her hearing we were going through the paperwork throughout those years it was such a pain we had to fill out so many forms and so many translations we had to go through attestations and notary public and what not so all the legal processes how was it uh sort of integrating into the community in Canada both of us had been to Canada before because of our work we were connected with canadian uh international organizations here so i had been to canada a couple of times before especially to toronto and my husband had also been here i know many people who come from other countries as immigrants or refugees and they directly go to ymca or any such organizations because they don't have anyone here but we were the fortunate ones we had people friends and we knew uh uh the system and we knew people but still i would say that more than cultural integration it was more like understanding of the system and how things work here it didn't take us long in understanding that but the thing that we missed more was a support system that we had there like the family and you know there are certain cultural nuances that you miss sometimes so those were the ones but we i must say we were very fortunate in that we were not the ones who 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 didn't know anything about toronto or about canada we we knew a lot and also we have been we had been politically very aware about the things and we wanted to become voters as early as possible <laughs> when people ask me what would you do after becoming citizens and we always said we want to vote coming from pakistan mm-hmm. and and finding your permanent home in canada mm-hmm. what are some of those differences that you saw some of some of the things that uh, i guess set you back a little bit on day to day basis those unsaid and said feelings that sometimes you don't communicate in words but be- because you belong to certain culture you understand for example people hardly call each other before going to each other's homes they just knock at the door and you there is a whole <laughs> family of 10 people yeah right this is just one example and then another example would be if you are you bought something big let's say you bought a car and the neighbor is here and he's asking all the questions where did you buy it when did you buy it what is the brand and how how what do you earn and all so that kind of things just to say just as an example so as somebody who's gone through the process of of becoming a refugee mm-hmm. and, and now a full-fledged citizen of Canada do you feel like our government's doing enough 
to help the refugees uh, to come here? Um, the system has become more difficult as compared to previous years. I know Canada since the days when we had CEDA. You know, we don't have CEDA anymore, right? CEDA is the Canadian International Development Agency, correct? Yeah, that's correct. We had CEDA. I think it turned into DFED, International... I forgot the full name. But anyways, the purpose of CEDA was that CEDA used to be an organization that helped and worked in developing countries and countries in need all over the world. Uh, CEDA changed. This process changed regarding international and humanitarian aid. They squeezed the funds internationally and working in a different way. That is one side. And on on the other side, the whole immigration process has become really, really cumbersome. It has become so difficult, not only for immigrants, but also for refugees and for family unification as well. People have to spend many, many years without hearing from the Canadian consulate. They lose applications there. You have to resubmit that. And it happened with me also. I, I wanted to bring my father under the super visa category and the Canadian uh, embassy lost his application. I had to file it again. And irony was that, that I got... Con- Hang on. So the, the embassy just lost the application? This is their routine. They lose the applications all the time. So how did you find out that they'd simply lost it? They, they don't say that they, they lost it, but we receive a letter in the mail and they say, can you send these, these, these documents? And you know that you already sent those documents, right? And for sure they lost it because we have the proof of receipt of the application. So this is just one example. And then I contacted the MP of my area. Uh, he was a conservative MP. And he contacted the embassy. And I one day I received a call from the MP's office saying, you know what? They lost the application. Probably you have to file again. And I said, really, are you serious? And he said, yeah, it's, it happens. And he was like so casual. So how, how long did it take to have to go through that process all over again? Again, it's, it's, uh, you file the fees again, and it is, I think, 200 or $250 for the application. Just to be, just to be clear, mm-hmm. they lost your application and then you had to pay a second time to file it? Yes, every time you file, you pay the new fees. So it happens all the time. And then the refugee process has also become so difficult. Now I hear that I don't know what are the exact dates, but now the government has put uh, certain limits uh, or deadlines for the application of refugees. It's not that you come and then you decide when you want to apply, not anymore. There are a certain number of days until which date you have to apply and you have to find your um, translator if you don't know English. And there is very little amount available to cover the translation expenses that lawyer can be paid to. So what's happening now is that... Um, If somebody wants to apply as a refugee, there's a certain deadline from the date of arrival to the date of application that people have to follow. If you cross that date, then there is another whole process to be eligible for that. Or maybe not. You you lose that eligibility. So these kinds of things. And also, previously, government paid the lawyers for the translation um, of the clients, of the refugees who don't speak English. Now, there is a very small amount, so small, that... I know personally a couple of lawyers who used to pay out of their own pocket just to help the refugees, but they couldn't sustain it. So they have stopped their practice because they wanted to help the refugees, And but the system has restricted them so much that they can't help them anymore. Would it be fair to say that you think right now the system's inadequate? It is definitely inadequate. So what could the government be doing differently now to help refugees uh, essentially find safe harbor in Canada? So for the refugees, they have to get a work permit. First, you are accepted as a protected person, and then you are accepted as a refugee as a next uh, level. So between being 
protected person and refugee, you have to get a work permit. And that work permit is time bound, either one year or two years. And also it can be area bound. For example, you can only work in Ontario. So if you find a job in Calgary, you can't go there. We were lucky enough, we got an open permit. So we could work anywhere we found a job. But most of the people, they have to go through this process also. So they are then stuck in certain cities, in certain um, kind of an industry also. They can also limit you according to the industry that you can only work in, say, manufacturing. You cannot work in any other office, say. So all these kinds of limitations, it really um, makes it hard for the people to live peacefully. And then we also have objection for them that they don't integrate. I hear people saying, well, immigrants come here, refugees come here and they don't integrate. Well, they leave their country and they come to another country to live there. So leaving your homeland is not a small thing. So when you leave your homeland for any reason, it means that you want to make the other country your home. And you are trying your level best. But then we need to look at the other side, that how government is helping, how the system is helping, how there are other institutions which are there to help them. Given that there is so much interest right now in refugees coming to Canada and Canadians wondering how they can get involved, how they can help, what would you say to people who have this newfound interest? What is a really important thing or set of things that they can do to support refugees who are coming to Canada? I would say my first thing is thank you for being so compassionate. But I will give a suggestion that please respect their uh, cultural identities and try to understand the trauma they are going through. You know, living in a peaceful country and having all the facilities of life, we take things for granted most of the time. So my only suggestion would be that you who are inviting refugees, having big hearts, you are inviting them to Canada, you are putting money and you are so welcoming. Please also respect that they are human beings like us and their needs are slightly different these days because they are going through this trauma and they are fleeing their countries because of the conflict and war. Far Malik, we want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us on Canada Land Commons. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's our show for this week. If you'd like to continue the conversation on social media, and we highly suggest you do, search Canada Land Commons on Twitter. It'll be the first result you find. Our thanks this week to our producer, Kevin Sexton. And as always, music credits go to Nathan Burley. We are online at canadalandshow.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter, which is not sorry. If you'd like to email us, reach me, desmond at canadalandshow.com. Or andre at canadalandshow.com. If you have ideas for this show, get in touch with our producer, Kevin, by emailing kevin at canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe to us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please support us. That's patreon.com slash canadaland. Canada Land Shortcuts will be out on Thursday and the next episode of Commons will be out next Tuesday. Now, before we go this week, I have a very special shout out. I met someone from Whitehorse this week named Kara, and Kara told me that her boss, Chris in Whitehorse, listens to this program every week while walking his dog. Chris, if you are listening right now, how are things out in Whitehorse? Have a great week, everyone.
Okay, so you're you're a refugee bringer inner veteran. I am a refugee bringer inner veteran. Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, that's a good uh, name for me. That's a perfect that's title, a isn't it? Title. Yeah, can't you see that on your desk? Yeah, plaque? I think I should. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan, well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. 